Uh, if you're new or uh, visiting or a guest with us, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and it's just a joy to have you uh, here this morning to worship, to celebrate, and now to hear God's word. That question, so where are you from? That's a, that's a key question uh, as we interact with or get to know somebody new, isn't it? And, and we usually think on the geographical level, so the, you know, where are you from is like, what city or town or country are you from? But you know, that, that same question can actually apply sort of from our family background too. Like, who are your people? Where, where are you from in the sense of, where's your family from? And really to some extent when we ask, where are you from, we're asking the question, who are you? It, it's about identity. Now, I bring that up because I'm about to do what I think most preachers dread. Yes, both to read and preach from a biblical genealogy. Dun, dun, dun. Um, maybe dread is too strong a word. But uh, for those of you who make a regular habit of reading the Bible, and if you're, if you're a Jesus follower, I hope that that's something that you do, that you make a regular habit of reading. Uh, if you do, though, you are inevitably going to come up against a long list of names, sometimes 10 chapters in a row. I'm just finishing 2 Kings in my personal reading, by the way. I know it's coming. 10 chapters in a row of names that you really struggle to pronounce. And in your quiet time after you read a genealogy, you say, Lord, why? Why is this here? What could you possibly be saying to me through a list of names? Well, I got to tell you, I have changed my mind about genealogies about their significance, about what God has to say to us through them. And I'm going to change all of your minds this morning. Well, maybe not. That's maybe too much to to, to claim. But but really, I I think that God has something to say to us through the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And um, I want to help, before I read the text, to set the stage. Uh, We're going to be studying Matthew's gospel. Uh, We're going to take a break after next week to to do our gift book series, and I hope you'll all plug into a group and and study along with us. But then we're going to come back to Matthew's gospel, and and then for the last 28 weeks, or the next 28 weeks, we'll just be working through a chapter a week and finding out what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is he really? And that's going to be exciting. So I want to start by just giving you a little bit of background on Matthew's gospel as we start. A gospel is a is a biography. It's a true story of Jesus. It's very likely written by a disciple of Jesus. I say very likely because scholars sometimes disagree over authorship issues. Um, If you want to know why I think it was Matthew the disciple, you could talk to me after. I'll get very excited. It will take an hour, but you've been warned, okay? See, we read about this guy, this tax collector, and his name is Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. And when Jesus meets the tax collector, all we know of the the record of what happened is Jesus says, follow me. And for whatever reason, Matthew gets up, walks away from his tax collector booth and his whole life, actually, and begins to follow Jesus. I don't know all the reasons why, but we, we should know that for a Jewish person like Matthew to be working a tax collector booth This means that he was seen as a traitor to his own Jewish nation. Why? Because his job was serving the oppressive Roman government. And like most tax collectors, he's making himself rich, lining his pockets by taking more than his fair share in his tax collecting efforts. So this Matthew, he's seen as both a traitor to his own nation and a moral outcast. 
Now, each of the four Gospels is written to a specific group of people with a specific purpose in mind. And Matthew certainly has his reasons. I mean, the big picture is that Matthew wants to put Jesus in front of us, the community of Jesus followers, to say, this is your saving king, and this is what it looks like to follow him. So that's the big picture. But within that, we've got to see another key purpose he has. See, from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jewish Christians were facing immense pressures. You even see this in the book of Acts from their uh, non-Christian Jewish neighbors, those who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. See, Christianity was spreading rapidly among Gentile or non-Jewish believers. The majority of Christians, by the time he's writing, are actually coming not from the Jewish people, but from the Gentiles. And so the Jewish Christians at this point, they are participating in God's promise for all people. But now to their Jewish neighbors who don't share this view of Jesus, they now are being seen as traitors, traitors to their Jewish heritage. It was as though they were abandoning their national identity in favor of this new found faith called Christianity. So the Christian faith was, was breaking down all of the barriers and the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, and it was taking people who have just deeply broken and messed up backgrounds and bringing them by God's grace into this one people. People like Matthew himself get included now. So here's Matthew's concern. He's writing primarily for other Jewish Christians to assure them that yes, when they follow Jesus Messiah, they are very much living in line with their Jewish heritage. In fact, the growing Gentile majority in the church actually proves the point that God's purposes from of old are being worked out. So a big part of Matthew's gospel then is showing us how Jesus is filling full all of God's purposes that we read about in the Old Testament. And that theme of fulfillment, we will see it over and over and over again in Matthew's gospel. So now, with some of that background in mind, I want us to read the first 17 verses of, of Matthew's gospel. And let's just pray as we prepare our hearts to hear. God, we thank you for inspiring Matthew to write this text down in exactly this way. Open our hearts and minds to hear all that you want to say to us through it today. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. I really encourage you, I want to encourage you, and you'll hear this lots over the next weeks, to bring, a, if you've got a paper version of the Bible, to bring it with you. I really like that. Here's why. Bible apps are great. But you don't see just how huge this story is when you've just got the little screen in front of you. Having your paper Bible open in front of you keeps you aware of the, just the, 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 the breadth of the story. And if you need to flip around, you can kind of see how big this story is. Anyways, that's my little plug for paper Bibles. If you don't have one, by the way, come and see me. I'll just give you one, all right? Let's begin. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Pause. <laughs> the word Messiah means anointed one or king. That's what it's in reference to. So calling Jesus the son of David, that's picking up on the covenant language, the promise that God made to King David to say someone, a king, is going to sit on your throne forever. So pay attention to David language. But more than that, 
And this matters a ton to Matthew's big point. Jesus is named son of Abraham. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant, a promise with Abraham. He says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through who? How many people? All, the whole thing, everybody, everybody, every nation, every tongue, every language blessed through you. So Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the descendant who will bring that blessing to all people. People outside of the Israelite community will now be brought in to the people of God. So now let's listen to the rest of some names here. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Ah, there's a mom in this list. Pay attention to the moms. They really matter. Oh, they do, of course. But in this story, and who gets named really matters too. Let's keep going. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite outside of the people of Israel and a prostitute. She believed God's plans for the city of Jericho. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now Ruth, also a Moabitess. She's outside of the people of Israel, not a part of God's covenant. Interesting. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Notice how he mentions king there. That's really important. There's other kings in this list, but only David is named king. That matters. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That is Bathsheba, the woman David had an affair with, and then he murdered her husband. Yikes. But every Jewish person reading this story knows exactly who he's talking about. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jacoan was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihu, Abihu the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The Lord bless the reading of this text this morning. We made it. I'm just, just being cheeky. Matthew, as I hope you can see, is doing a ton through this genealogy. We can't say that much about it, this morning because there's so much, but let's touch on a few points that we really need to hear. First, Matthew is messing with messianic expectation. You know, sometimes it can be hard when we're expecting one thing to happen and something completely different is the outcome. You know, you take a new job in a city, you just get started, you love the job, but six months in, 
the company downsizes and you're out passing out resumes and you're wondering what just happened. Expectations and unmet expectations, that can mess with your head. You know, Jesus comes as Messiah, as king, but in a way that the people were not expecting. And Matthew wants to show us that. See, notice this is a very human genealogy. It uses the phrase, was the father of, um, and that's actually, it's just from one Greek word, which is genesis, or we usually pronounce it genesis. That's the Greek word that's being used here. And um, it sometimes gets translated just a single word, begat. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. And it shows up 40 times in this genealogy. It's always in the active voice, meaning there's an active participation. It's a very earthy, human sort of fathering or begetting, if you follow my drift. But then the whole story of earthly fathering just shifts suddenly in verse 16 with the arrival of Jesus. The verb fathered or begat, it's still there, but it switches from active voice to passive in the Greek. And the focus of it, the referent is Mary. There's a whole lot of uh, grammar geekiness, but let me tell you what it means. It's actually really important. There's no earthly fathering going on with Jesus. Here's how I might translate it really woodenly. And Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was begotten. That's the passive voice. There's no earthly fathering going on here. It's Matthew's way of saying, yes, Jesus is fully in the line of of King David. He is in that lineage as the Messiah, but not in the way you expect. Because A, this is a miraculous birth. Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit's work. This is a divine intervention. And we see it in the next scene, and I'm going to preach about that tomorrow night at our Christmas Eve services, that Jesus really is, in every sense, God with us. He's fully divine and fully human at the same time. And that's mysterious. It's hard to get our heads around, but it's true. And even Matthew's turn of a little bit of grammar tells us so. So Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father, not a natural one. But here's why this matters so much, and this is point B. The expectation was for a ruler, not only in the line of David, but in the way of David. David was a warrior. Read through the book of Samuel again. He conquers at the end of a sword, and that's the hope that Israel, the expectation Israel had for their Messiah. From Israel and for Israel, with a sword. And in Jesus you get something wholly different than that. No wonder Jewish folks were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. He doesn't conquer like David. The Romans are still oppressively ruling over us. In fact, as we fast forward through the Jesus story, we find that he dies a shameful criminal's death on a Roman cross. It like signals that Rome has won. That's what people think. It looks like Jesus is a fraud, a phony, and a failure. But, and we see this right in the birth story, Jesus has come to defeat a far greater enemy than the, than the Romans. He's come to defeat the evil and sin that infest my heart. That's what he's come to defeat, and he actually does it. The greatest need that I have to be restored in relation to God, Jesus makes possible. He lets his life break so that mine can mend and yours can mend. And he truly conquers death as we see in his resurrection. And so, C, 
it is not just for Israel that Jesus came. The expectation was that somehow Israel would be restored to a mighty military empire of its own. But, and Matthew will show us this all throughout the gospel, that was never God's aim. That's not God's intention. When he called Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, remember, the promise was to all people. At the time of Jesus, Israel was locked in a nationalistic vision. It's all about us, they were thinking. But Jesus blows that apart. And Matthew shows us that this was always God's plan. Just notice the moms. One point that we can pull out from this genealogy, at least two of them, maybe three, are outsiders to Israel. Why does Matthew include these women? In part, to make the point that God's heart is for more than just Israel. And the story of Israel actually shows us that. He's going to use people from outside in order to bring about his purposes. Here's the take home for us. You are on God's page when you, every single person you interact with, read about in the news, see on the news, whatever religious background they come from, whatever their current practices and whether you agree with them or not, every single person, you need to know that God loves them. That God, it is not God's plan that any should be separated from him for eternity. So my posture to every person I meet needs to be one of seeing the, the beauty of the person that God made them to be and to have this in mind too. I need to love them with the love of Jesus and point them to salvation through Jesus. Any mindset, any way of thinking about other people, then that is off of God's page. You're out of line with his heartbeat for the nations. So Jesus is king. He's king in a way that defied expectation. But I need to point something else about this text. It actually comes with a set of objections. Uh, it raises the question, can we really trust Matthew and what he's telling us about Jesus at all? You might have noticed there's this symmetry of 14s. Three times, you'll see 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Like, what is with that? Great question. Glad you asked. Uh, some people have actually thought it is a really big problem. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a man who wrote a, an article for our local newspaper, and uh, he said that the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel is both unbelievable and ridiculous, and he said that he is dumbfounded that anyone would believe it, that centuries of Christians would accept Jesus' virgin birth and therefore his divinity. So the question becomes, whoa, okay, is it ridiculous? Am I ridiculous to believe it? Uh, so I wrote an article back, um, and I want to share some of what I said in it. This man begins by saying, pointing out that Matthew's genealogy skips generations in order to create symmetry of 14s. Guess what? He's totally right. Matthew does. You can compare Matthew's genealogy with other genealogies like the one found in Luke, and you'll see, oh, Matthew skips around. This man thinks it's a problem. Let me show you how it's not at all. <laughs> in fact, he compares it to the finance minister saying, uh, or, or something equivalent to the minister of finance has omitted several expenditures to achieve a balanced budget. Is that the equivalent of what Matthew is doing here? Is it a problem? No, and here's why. To begin with, we owe Matthew, the author, the courtesy of letting him speak within the cultural norms of his day. Matthew is a theologian, and he skips generations to make a point. The Jewish writers in the Old Testament, they do the same. 
many scholars have pointed out that, that in the book of Genesis, the same kind of thing is happening. And here's why it's not a problem. The word genesis that we looked at already, often translated was the father of or begat. Guess what? It can also be applied to grandfathers just as easily or just simply a descendant of. So if that word doesn't mean fathered in the literal sense, but just a descendant of, then there is absolutely no issue. Matthew's not lying to us. He's not trying to mess with their heads. In fact, this was completely normal within his cultural um, writing and what, what was going on for that time. So it wouldn't be seen as an issue for first century Jews. And that's where we have to start with. Next, this man claims that there's no apparent reason why Matthew would include uh, sets of 14 generations. He thinks this is just silly. Why would he even say that? Well, I actually think there's a very good reason. Um, The Jewish people often used a form of communication to work with symbols that is called gematria. Now, gematria gives a numeric value to each letter of the alphabet. So in English, it'd be like this. A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals three, and so on and so forth. Um, David, remember that focus on King David that we see in here? Well, in Hebrew, David's name is spelt Dalet Vav Dalet. Dalet, uh, Dalet is the fourth in the Hebrew alphabet. Vav is the sixth. Dalet again, another four. Do the math. It adds up to 14. Could it be that Matthew was actually doing something very meaningful and beautiful, something that was a regular practice within his Jewish context to to create a link for us to say, yes, Jesus really is the ancestry and line of David. He really is the promised coming king, the Messiah. So what's with the numbers? It's all about Jesus' identity. He is God's true king because he's actually God come to be with us. And that's where we need to focus next. Jesus is the true king. Throughout the genealogy, Matthew is declaring that he's the king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And so this text calls you and I to actually make a choice. Will we claim him as our king? And we need to ask, what would that even mean, right? I mean, we live in a highly individualistic world. I, me, I'm the king of my life. I mean, that's where our minds kind of naturally go. Now, the band Delirious, and if you grew up in the 90s like I did, you probably sang lots of their songs in church. They wrote a song called King of Comfort, and they reflect on this impulse. Martin Smith sings the words, save me. God, save me from this kingdom of comfort where I am king, from my unhealthy lust for material things. Save me from the kingdom of comfort where I'm king to this kingdom of heaven where you are king. It's a simple lyric, but it's profound. See, that writer gets it. To say Jesus is king, that is meaningless unless I'm actually ready to bow my knees and my heart and my whole life to his loving leadership. It's one thing to claim to know Jesus and another to say to Jesus, Jesus, it's your will and your ways always. Whatever you're calling me to in my actions, my thoughts, my behaviors, how I interact on social media, how I speak to my kids, my coworkers, and more, how I get on with doing the good things, even the hard things you've called me to. That's my whole life now. In fact, Jesus wraps up the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at it in a few months with these words. Not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Wow, that is a, you might say, a hard saying of Jesus. He draws a line. Jesus says, either I'm king or I'm not. Let's personalize that a little bit. He's either your king or he's not. I'm not trying to be dramatic with that. That's just what Jesus says here. I'm trying to reflect what it means to claim him as king. As we sang it in our song this morning, king forever, ceasing never. King, God, and sacrifice. Like Matthew, we too have to make a choice. Stay here in the tax collector booth, keep life as it is, keep living as I'm living, or respond to the call, follow me. And we get up and we leave our old life behind and we begin to walk with Jesus. Paul, the apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I myself have died. Like I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. My old life is actually dead. That's what we symbolize in baptism. For anyone who says I'm a follower of Jesus, they need to be baptized because then you symbolically say with your life, my old life is dead. I'm a follower of Jesus now. Going under the water is like dying being raised up again is like saying, I'm, I'm totally his. That's what we signal through our baptism. For Matthew and the early church, when they made the choice to follow King Jesus, when they went on to announce to the world that he is Lord of all, it came at a great cost. It cost them reputation, kinship, connections. Many of them were disowned by their families, dishonored, slandered, They even lost their lives because they had come to believe that Jesus was really Lord of all, or some of them lost their lives because of that. So Jesus essentially says, we'll have no part in the kingdom of heaven unless we recognize that Jesus is the king. I mean, that just makes sense. The king of the kingdom needs to be our king if we're going to be a part of the kingdom, right? Now, I know that this could sound like I'm saying that we're saved by our obedience. That's not it. Our obedience comes from recognizing how God loves us, how he initiates our salvation. And then it's our response to that. In fact, in the next, in the next scene, we read these words in Matthew 1.21. It's the whole reason Jesus came. The angel shows up to Joseph and says, name him Jesus. Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua in English means God saves. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins This is God's work from beginning to end. It's God who saves us. And then we respond to him by acknowledging his kingship and his leadership in our lives. Our part, let him lead. So what does that look like, Dave? Well, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is going to be fleshing that out way more. And in fact, our gift book uh, talks about our purpose in following God too. So over the next uh, months, we'll be digging into more of what that looks like. But you might have noticed Jesus' family tree, it's got some pretty messed up characters in it too. Not so unlike my family tree, actually, and maybe not that unlike your family tree if you started digging around a little bit. It's filled with the good, the bad, the ugly, and yet this is the story God chooses to write. This is the one he uses, and that should be a great encouragement to you. It is to me. It says to anyone who's broken, who has messed up deeply like I have or been messed over by others. All of the women in this genealogy, all of them, all the moms 
are involved in this line leading up to the Messiah, of all the women Matthew could have included, like he chooses these ones, deeply broken, abused, hurt by others, embroiled in sexual scandal. I mean, Tamar was brutally raped by her half-brother Ammon. Rahab, she's a prostitute, Canaanite, an outsider to the Jewish nation. Ruth, well, she's also from outside the people of Israel. And Ruth, what was that bit about that dodgy night at the feet of Boaz? What's really going on there? So there's, there's scandal for every one of the women named. Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba, just the woman who committed adultery with him, with David. But he does mention that, that she was the wife of another man. And every reader of the gospel knows that David murdered Uriah. So you might ask, like, whoa, talk about a dysfunctional family. And man, why highlight all the dirt, all these really painful moments? It seems the opposite. He could have included different women, right? But these are the ones he chooses. Why? It seems the opposite of how we kind of present ourselves to the world. On social media, uh, you know, we tend to highlight the moments that show our best side, not our ugliness, not the pain, not usually at least. So why point up the messed up moments leading up to the birth of Jesus for the same reason that anyone who trusts in Jesus, people like me and you, the only reason we are included in the line leading on from Jesus, it's sheer grace. God, in his divine mercy, he has sawn fit to call us broken, sinful people to himself. God takes what is broken and messed up and he accomplishes his beautiful, glorious purposes through us. And Matthew, remember, Jesus comes to him when he's a tax collector. He's an extortionist. He's ripping off his fellow Jews to line his own pocket. One preacher said it like this, Matthew knows he's the least likely person to be writing a gospel and that's what makes it gospel. The good news is, because Jesus takes broken, sinful, least likely people like Matthew and Rahab and me, and then he pours his grace out on us. And then he says to us, that grace I poured out into your life, I want you to take that same grace and pour it out onto those around you, to be my people in the world in that way. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, what you want to be about? I want, I want to be about that. And so maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're not sure that God wants to have anything to do with you. Now, on the outside, you look just fine to us. You really do. You look great this morning. But on the inside, some of you are thinking, why would God want to use me at all? You need to hear this today. That why would God want to have anything to do with me is actually the qualification for coming into the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are those who recognize their need for God, who know that you're without a hope in the world unless God does something. So until you know your need, you can have no claim on the life of God or his kingdom. But for those like Matthew and that mixed bag in this genealogy, God's grace and kindness comes to them and lives through them. This God, rich in mercy, can transform you and me and use our story if you let him. So let him open the door of your life to the saving king. One last point as we begin to wrap up here. All the women, I I mentioned this already, in this genealogy are surrounded by scandal in one way or another. And that sets us up for another scandal that's introduced in verse 16. Mary, 
unwed teenage girl. She's now pregnant. She's claiming to be a virgin still. Mary, an angel of the Lord came to you and said it's from the Holy Spirit. Come on. Who was it really? Talk about a scandal. And yet God, boy, this is what he chooses. This is the way he plans to bring his son into the world. God, in his grace, chooses to enter in the messiest, most confusing of situations. And he wants us to know it. As we've seen, this genealogy tells us that Jesus is king, not just of Israel, but the whole world. We've seen that he saves by his grace and for his own glory so that Jesus will be known as king of the whole world around the globe. And Jesus will send out his disciples to make him known to every tribe and tongue and language. And guess what? We're still bound up in that mission. That mission is still not complete, so we're still a part of it. Here's the bottom line for us, this genealogy. We'll see three distinct groups throughout Matthew's gospel. We'll see the religious leaders, and they say to Jesus, you're not our king. They reject him. Second, we'll see the crowds. They stand as kind of curious onlookers. They'll follow Jesus around because they're hoping to get something from him. He heals people. He feeds people. As long as he's making them feel happy and good about themselves, they're there, but there's no real commitment. As soon as things get hard or challenging, they're nowhere to be found. And ultimately and eternally, those crowds fall away. They have no real part with the king or his kingdom. And this by far is the largest group in Matthew's gospel, and that should come as a warning to us. Then there's a third group. It's a small band of Jesus' followers. Those like Matthew, the tax collector, those women who follow Jesus, they're the ones who show up to go and bring spices to, to, for Jesus' burial and find out that he's not even there at the after the crucifixion. These are the ones who respond to the call of Jesus, like Matthew, by getting off their seat, dropping the life path that they were on, and actually beginning to follow Jesus. They listen to Jesus. They learn from Jesus. And some of them will literally lose their lives because they're following him. Their whole life and aim and priority is shaped in response to this person who loved them so much he let his life break apart for them, for you. That's where it starts from. It is God who initiates this and gives his life to you. Now, would you let him melt your heart so that you follow him? So I need to ask, which group? Are, ask yourself this question. <laughs> Don't answer out loud. Or you could, well, either way, but... Probably just answer it to yourself. Which group do you currently belong to? But here's the grace question. I love this one. Which group do you want to belong to? Like the leaders, will you reject Jesus? Like the crowds, will you toy with him, casually observe him, but never make a real commitment? Or like the disciples, will you say, Jesus, you are truly my king because you love me. And so now, Jesus, there's no conditions on my obedience to you. My whole life is now in your hands for your glory to be known throughout the world. That's the course of my life from here on out. My decisions are all based on this question. What does Jesus, King Jesus, want for me today? I abandon every claim to life on my own terms because you're my king. You're my love. You're my ultimate. And you're worthy of nothing less. So you need to see the whole course of your life, like, right now, how you live, and your eternal future, it all hangs on your response.
to Jesus. Even this genealogy, as we've seen this morning, it draws a line in the sand and says, cross it. Is Jesus your king or is he not your king? Will you let him lead you out of his deep love and grace towards you? Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you so much for this text, this long list of names who are not just names, but these are the people that you called to be part of your family and the coming of the Savior. And Jesus, now even as we look at this question that's posed before us now is how do we respond to King Jesus? I want to pray for those who are in either category one or two right now. Right now, Jesus is either on the, on the rejected space or the I'm interested, but I'm just toying with Jesus space. God, I pray that you would be breaking through by the power of your Holy Spirit to reveal yourself. I pray, pray Father, that if there's anyone who says, yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I want to, for him to be my saving king, God, that they would, they would put their trust, they would take that step today to say, Jesus, I trust you. I need you. Forgive me. Make me new and empower me to follow you. I just thank you for that, Lord. And for those who are in that third category, we want to follow Jesus and live for him. God, empower us by your Holy Spirit to continue staying close to you this week, to be responsive to you, to be learning from you, listening to you, and saying yes when you call us to follow. We thank you so much for your grace that you come to us to change us, renew us. Amen.